Hi, welcome back to Brandon Wilborn's Fantasy Fiction, where fans of classic fantasy adventures can hear the serialized audiobooks of a fellow nerd and indie author completely for free. I'm your author, narrator, and host, Brandon Wilborn. Thanks for listening this week. As usual, the story portion of this episode starts about the minute and a half mark if you want to skip me jabbing. Just a little personal update here. I am over that cold I had a week or two ago, but I had uh, an interesting 4th of July. <laughs> Mildly concussive, potentially. I was chasing my dog who was scared from the fireworks and uh, rammed my head into the doorframe. So I got my first bout of staples. I've had stitches before, but now I've got staples. So I'm going to have to actually get those removed in a foreign country. So all kinds of adventures in a store for us this, uh, this coming month. But <laughs> I could use your prayers. Thanks very much. Now for the recap. Last week in the Treasure of Capric, Noman told the boys about the prophecy given to the abbot and why he thinks it might be about them after their encounter with the witch, Duwana. Curian then told his friends about the star he saw and he was really surprised by their reaction. Meanwhile, Fallon turned the city of Dury into a dragnet to catch the boys, only to be informed by Muna's magic that they were closer than he thought. This week will be in Chapter 11. Following that, a behind-the-keyboard segment about the surprises that occasionally come while writing. Now I present for your enjoyment, The Treasure of Capric. Chapter 11 A Warm Welcome Soft drops of rain on his face woke Curry in the next morning. He felt calmer than he had during their entire journey, as if the terrible events of the last two weeks had only been a story told by one of the brothers before bed. For a few moments in the refreshing drizzle, the tragedy didn't seem like it touched him. Then he remembered their encounter with the witch. He remembered the feathers beating against his skin and shuddered. Everyone else rose because of the rain, too except the others jumped up from where they slept and quickly rolled up their blankets to stow them. By the time they had enjoyed a small breakfast, the rain grew heavier. The cold, hard sheets of water washed away Curian's waking euphoria. He dreaded the day's march as they started. The constant din of the rain dragged out the long hours of riding into a damp monotony. The hood of his wool robes saturated quickly and then dripped water down his face. During the heaviest downpours, they could not see more than a dozen yards and Curia knew that the rainy season was officially beginning. He hoped Tobin was right about God being with them, but this seemed like more proof to the contrary. Harsh weather became another obstacle to achieving their goal. To make things more miserable, Noman still insisted on dismounting and observing the office of prayers at the appropriate rest times. Curian was sorry that he could no longer join his friends in what had once been a meaningful part of their days together, but he was also glad he didn't have to kneel in the mud. The rainfall ebbed at times, but continued throughout the day. They slept on the plains again, creating makeshift tents with the extra blankets. It slowed the downpour, but they were still subject to persistent drips that made sleep difficult. They mounted weary and wet the next morning, expecting to reach Dury before lunch. The weather continued, forcing them to stay close to the riverbank so they wouldn't lose their way. Soon the road came into view on their left, paralleling the path of the river. A few miles later, they stood before the Dury Forest. The undergrowth was thick at the edge, making the forest of beech and oak trees look like an impenetrable wall, except for the passage of the road. The boys had never seen so many trees. The closest growth of trees they could compare it to was the neat rows of small orchards near Apford. 
Before the road entered the shelter of the trees, Louise veered left across the road and followed the timber line, saying, I know a place we can dry out. Eventually they entered a clearing cut out from the forest. A cottage stood in the center. It looked as if it were constructed largely from the trees cut from the clearing. The windows glowed with firelight, and they were all glad for the opportunity to get warm. Louise rode up to the cottage while the men held back. She dismounted and knocked at the door. Curian tried to watch the trees and the cottage. They were getting close to the king's camp, only a day away according to Louise. She had become pleasant enough on the plains, even friendly, but after all they had experienced, he felt he needed to be on guard. Evasius' servants had found them twice, and the king's men might not be as kind as Louise had been. He heard her shouting over the rain, and then the door swung open, and a large man in furs stepped out and lifted her off the ground in a great hug. When he finally stopped shaking her, she gestured back to them, and the man walked out to greet them. There's a shed for your horses around the other side of the house, he said. Get them settled in, and I'll pour you a bowl of stew. Curian's stomach nearly howled at the mention of hot food. He saw a smile spread across Reese's face. Enjoying some hospitality would be a welcome reprieve. Inside, the cottage was nearly as sparse as the cut clearing it stood in. A straw mattress lay on the dirt floor in one corner. The only furniture was a small table with two chairs. But it was warm and brightly lit by a large fire and several oil lamps. The warm air felt like a barrier he had to cross to enter the doorway and with it came the aroma of a heavily herbed stew. His stomach growled again as he took a deep whiff of their first warm meal in a week. Gideon Birch, said their host, handing out steaming bowls from the table. He stood even taller than Reese did, so that he had to duck under the bags of potatoes and squashes hanging from the rafters, a motley collection of thick furs bunched around his shoulders, making him appear bulkier than he truly was, and his bushy reddish beard created the illusion that the furs were part of him. He was clearly strong and stout, the type of man that Reese would grow to be. The smile had not left his face since he met them in the rain, and wrinkles from laughing made him look older than he probably was. From where Curian was standing, Gideon was large enough to block his view of the table, so that he was surprised to see another figure seated there when Gideon finished giving them their stew. Alden, Louise said happily, and crossed over to her partner from down Rivertown. Why haven't you said hello? Well, it's tight quarters in here said the flute player. I figured you'd see me soon enough. She laughed and hugged him. Both of the men looked at her with the love of a proud, protective uncle. I'm sorry I don't have more seating, Gideon said. But you lot should be used to eating on the ground by now. Noman thanked him for the food and then introduced himself and the boys. Curian almost forgot to wait for the prayer before devouring the stew. As he scraped the bottom of the bowl, Gideon said, Don't be shy if you want more. It's good to see you, Alden said to Louise after she sat down across from him. Then he looked at Curian. And I'm glad you made good on your promise. I'm glad to see you again too, Louise said, smiling. I wanted to send help as soon as I got to the king, even though I knew it was a fool's errand. It would be more than a miracle to find anybody out wandering on the plains. Looking at Curian again, he said, If you'd stayed to the riverbed, it would be another matter but I was right about your road being more dangerous. There was silence. I'm sorry about your brothers, Alden said to them all. We received the news from a friend in Pollingham. Thank you, Noman said. It may actually be worse than we thought, said Louise. 
we met a witch at Finn. Somehow she was able to turn into a murder of crows and fly straight to Evasius. Then he knows you're coming. Alden paused in thought for a moment. Of course, we could have surmised that from the company of soldiers that arrived in Dury three days ago, led by that captain you blinded. They've been on to us at every turn, Corrine said. Evasius and his family do not get where they are by anything except ruthless cunning. Alden sipped at his own stew. Remember old Henry at the tavern? Curian remembered the insane rant from the man at the briny mug. Suddenly he realized that the nonsense rhyme seemed to match the prophecy that Noman had told them after meeting the witch. Wait, you told me that he knew we were going to the king because he saw us together. But he knew things about us, who we were, just like that witch did. Alden looked uncomfortable for a moment and glanced at Louise. And what would you have said if I told you that I thought a witch had taken his mind or possessed him with a demon? At the time, I would have thought you were overly superstitious. But I did ask if that trick you did to make him quiet was magic. Curian tried to watch his reaction, but Gideon broke in. The king's men are not without their own mysteries, he said. But right now, we have to figure out how to get you lot past nearly a hundred soldiers and guards. Where do you fit into all of this? Tobin asked. I've always been very comfortable alone, Gideon said, still smiling. In fact, I was recruited while hiding in a cave full of grain outside the city walls. The king asked me to make this place for our friends to move quietly between Dury and Pollingham. I give protection and warm food. I get a quiet place where I can build things. So you are going to get us up the cliff? No, Louise and Alden can do that. Gideon lifted the edge of the furs he was wearing to reveal a sword strapped to his back and a leather shirt that held enough daggers and knives to make him look like a pincushion. I have a chat with anybody trying to follow you. I see. It was Tobin's turn to look uncomfortable. Even when showing off his weapons, the smile never left Gideon's face. Lorraine will give us some cover if it doesn't let up, but we won't be moving till well after dark. He reached up to a loft built above the door and pulled down a bundle of tied cloth. Now that you've warmed up a bit, Alden brought you some fresh clothes to wear. Sorry, Norman, but I didn't know you were coming. I have something extra that should fit, Alden said. Just until I'm dry, thank you, Norman replied. I've also got a couple of hammocks and some blankets. You can rest until we're ready to leave, said Gideon, pulling down another bundle. Unfortunately, brother, I'm going to have to insist you change for everyone's safety. If I cannot wear my robes when they are dry, then I will sleep in them wet, the dean said. Alden held up a hand before Gideon opened his mouth again. I understand. They are symbols of your order. However, the soldiers know your order was destroyed, and they're looking specifically for three monks and a young woman. If they find even one from your order, there will be nowhere to hide. Every soldier in that company will come down on us in a moment. I have worn these robes for over fifty years, Noman said, his eyes sparkling wet in the firelight. Besides these boys, they are all I have left of my home and my life. Do not ask me to cast them aside so lightly. Alden leaned forward in his chair and looked long into the dean's eyes. I will only ask it for a short time, then. 
Will you consent to a disguise until we have reached the king's camp? Noman stared back at him, looking as uncertain as Curian felt the first time he had spoken with Alden. The calm, reasonable demeanor was disarming. He made you want to trust him. The dean eventually nodded his head and Alden gave him a comforting smile. I will dry and pack them with care myself, he said. Now what about your staves? They're another giveaway. We gathered a lot of weapons from some guards that tracked us, said Reese eagerly. Swords, daggers. Noman patted him on the shoulder like a parent calming an excited child. If you promise that we may retrieve them on our return, I will consent to whatever replacements you approve. They will be safely hidden. Alden nodded his head. Curian and the brothers stripped down to the singlets beneath their robes and found places to lie down. Gideon held the blanket out to offer Louise some privacy while she changed, and then she picked her way between them to one of the hammocks he had strung from the corner of the ceiling. Alden claimed the mattress. Only Gideon stayed awake, sitting next to the fire and propping his feet up on the table. The ground was harder than the grass of the plain, but after an exhausting two days in the rain, Curian fell asleep immediately. As night approached, Captain Fallon waited for news in the tavern beside the bunkhouse. Strategically, it was his preference for a temporary headquarters. It gave him visibility to the public and was the closest building to a central point between the three gates of Dury. The main street from the southern gate forked in two directions, one toward each of the northern gates, and the tavern stood in the fork. If a runner came with a report, he could move quickly without having to cross the entire city. The tavern was also a likely spot for the monks to come if they were able to sneak past his men. After he had arrived and spread out a large map of Dury on one of the tables, the patrons quickly finished their ales and left. He enjoyed being alone with his work in the large room. It was more appropriate to the position he enjoyed. The apartment in which he'd slept didn't provide enough room to walk and think. It would have gnawed away at his concentration until he was irritable, and he found that irritability was not conducive to either good tactical decisions or successfully leading men. Upon waking from his conference with Muna that morning, he had rescheduled the watch rotation, ensuring that his veterans would be rested and alert later in the day. It made the greenhorns more listless and tired in the morning, but it ensured a tighter watch after nightfall. If the monks were smart, they would use darkness to slip by his guards. Fallon would attempt to counter that strategy by sending his patrols further down each of the main roads and hiding lookouts in the woods. With the mayor's help, he had also instituted an immediate curfew. The criers had passed through the streets all day, warning that anybody discovered out after nightfall would be arrested. The only piece of the arena that he couldn't control was the rain. That would still be in his prey's favor. If Evasius's witches had true power, he thought, they would fix that for him as well. He stopped beside the large front window of the tavern and noticed that the rain had let up. Perhaps Muna had more influence than he knew. More likely, it was just a temporary break in the storm. The wind still whipped through the streets as it had all afternoon. He scratched lightly at the wound over his ribs, thinking about the witch was just a distraction. He resumed walking around the room, examining the map on the table from every angle. His instinct told him that they would come tonight. All his intelligence confirmed it. Now his plans hinged on the moment he heard boots running down the street. Waiting for battle was always when he felt most at peace. All the confusion of life fell away. 
everything became clear. Finally, the boys get what seems like a little bit of a reprieve. This Gideon character seems friendly enough, but he still has a dangerous side that we will see more of very soon. Both sides are set for a game of cat and mouse in the woods. Will the Capricks weave their way through the net, or will Fallon capture some or all of them? Join me next Friday for Fox and Hound as the treasure of Caprick continues. In this week's Behind the Keyboard segment, I just wanted to share one of those experiences that is sometimes very surprising as a writer. Every so often, you're typing along, intending to follow whatever plan you had for a scene, and suddenly things are happening that you'd never considered. That happened in this chapter. I fully expected that Alden was going to open the door to that cabin, and that it was a generic, typically empty safe house that the king's men were using. When Gideon opened the door in the midst of me typing it up, I was as surprised as Kurian. Somewhere, I'm sure he was rattling around deep in my imagination, but it was not a conscious decision to add him. Okay, I guess technically it was conscious because I wasn't sleeping, but it was not premeditated. After the burly woodsman puts Louise down, I sat there for a few minutes wondering, who is this guy? Now, it only made sense that he owned the cabin and he made use of his unusual talents to help the king. In just a few minutes, it was, it was as if his whole backstory were waiting in my notes for me because it just came naturally, which a lot of the story kind of did. I'm surprised that book two has been so, so much of a struggle comparatively. But he has been one of my favorites to include in every scene that he's in. Soon, you'll see Gideon surprise Fallon and his men even more than he surprised me. I'll also say that the same type of thing has happened recently while writing book two of The King of the Caves but I'm still sorting through exactly what the fallout from that surprise looks like because it was very different than just adding a new character. I'd love to hear if you have any questions or comments on that or anything else about the story, or if you'd like to share your own embarrassing uh, injuries from 4th of July or some other holiday, you can send me a message or leave me a voicemail over at brandonwilborn.com forward slash contact. I do personally respond to every message, and uh, with the right questions, I might even put them on the show. Thanks again for listening this week. I hope you enjoyed that little tidbit about the creative process and how surprising it can be for everyone involved. If you like the show or if you like the story, why not share it with somebody else you like who enjoys fantasy or especially clean fantasy? You'll be doing them a favor and you'll be doing me a favor so you can feel good. This is spread entirely by your recommendations at this point until I've got uh, a bit more time in my schedule to do some marketing. So thank you, dear listener. You're my only hope. Until next time, Godspeed. The Treasure of Capric is also available in print and ebook formats from all major booksellers. Find a link to your favorite retailer in the show description or go to brandonwilborn.com. That's brand on, not brand off, and Wilborn is as simple as you can make it W I L B O R N. This has been The Treasure of Capric, Book One of The King of the Caves, written and narrated by Brandon M. Wilborn. Copyright. Brandon M. Wilborn.